I am. Here you are, back together on a Wednesday night. Excited to be here. Um, Pastor Darlene's been bending my ear to uh, teach the book of Revelation, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be obedient, and, uh, and we'll see where we go. Um, I hope you enjoy the study. I don't know how long it's going to go or how many breaks we'll have to take in between, but uh, you know me, I'm about a two two weeks per chapter kind of guy, and there's 22 chapters in the book, so do the math. Um, so uh, we'll see where we go, but a couple of, uh, yeah, all right. A couple of things, though, before we get started, uh, just a quick testimony. Um, I love this book because it changed my life back in 1990. Uh, 94, when was it when I got out of the Navy? 92, 92, 1992, um, I stumbled on some old cassette tapes from California from the Jesus Movement. And uh, I didn't really, wasn't really on fire for God. You know, my dad brought me up to know the things of the Lord. I got saved when I was young, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues when I was a little boy. But you know, living with my mom, single parent out in California, Joined the Navy, you know, I didn't live for God, you know, but uh, I always knew he was there. And um, so in my struggles and trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life after I got out of the Navy, I was staying with my dad for a little bit and uh, I stumbled on these tapes. Um, I was going through his basement and uh, there was all these different tapes from, uh, from Calvary Chapel back in the, in the 70s when they had the Jesus movement. And they, they had a ministry called Firefighters for Christ. And it was a tape ministry. That was back when, you know, that's all we had was cassette tapes. So, you know, I'd sit there and I'd read, I'd listen to these cassette tapes and I'd have a Bible that my dad bought me and I'd be, and I, and I, I found the book of Revelation. And I don't know why, I, I just thought, well, you know, I'll just start right there. And, uh, and it changed my life. It changed my life. And, um, as in, and so I've never really been afraid of this book. I know a lot of people think, ooh, you know, they get the, they get the, whoa, you know, the hooly doos or, you know, many, many, many ministries try to avoid covering this subject. Um, but it's the first subject that I was baptized into. And um, there was something about the word of prophecy that it grabbed my life because it made me realize that the Bible's true. You know, how this Bible of 66 books by, oh, by 40 different writers, one author, over thousands of years, can all be talking about the same person in a coded message that is beyond our time frame. In other words, it predicts things and they come to pass. And when I realized as a really young believer struggling to consecrate my life to the Lord. When I understood that the, when the, the Lord would speak about something, hundreds of years, thousands of years before it happened, and then it come to pass, there was a conviction that hit my heart that made me realize I just can't take part of the Bible as fact. You got to accept the whole word of God. Amen. The whole counsel of God. And so then from that moment on, I fell in love with the Bible, with the scriptures, even though I'd be in and out with Jesus in my life for the Lord because I like to party. Um, but I always had a respect for God's word, always knew that it was the truth. Amen. Um, and, uh, and prophecy was, was the result of that. And um, I just realized that it says what it means, and it means what it says. Amen? So I have my, my hope and prayer is, is that, uh, that those of you that join us when we study this book together here, and those that maybe will listen online, or you can invite your friends, or maybe even your unsaved ones, um, that maybe this study would have that have that impact on their lives. Amen. That's my biggest prayer. Not to like try to connect the dots or not to try to like, 
figure out what's going on in current events and how they relate to the scriptures. My biggest prayer is that the study of this book draws us close to the one who wrote it. Um, Because as we see in the first verse, and we'll just start like this, it says right here in the introduction, verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is a book that is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of you up at the title of the page may have the revelation of St. John the Divine. Well, that's totally wrong. Because the Bible says right there it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. If they, you know, the people, the publishers that put these titles above the pages, they should have said the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Given to St. John. And he's not divine. Only Jesus is divine. Amen? So, you know, but religion through thousands of years of history have continued to try to make man to be worshipped. And man is not to be worshipped. Only Jesus is to be worshipped. He's the only God-man that is to be worshipped on planet Earth. Amen? And so... Let's just begin in chapter 1. It says, we'll read through the chapter and then we'll just talk about it a little bit. And then I've got a lot of some intro things that we can talk about, but I, I wanted to read the first chapter together. All right. So it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And that's a good place for everybody to say, Amen. Amen. Verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, Amen. Now I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That was Jesus talking in verse 8 there. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Verse 9. Now I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of those seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. That's chest. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace." And his voice as the sound of many waters. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength, in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand, and seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So there we go. So, a couple of things there right at the end. One of the things that is great about the Bible is, especially in Revelation, is that it always gives an interpretation. You know, we try to sometimes figure out what things are, but just like we saw there, that's a pattern that is established in this book. You know, what are the seven stars? They're the angels in the seven churches. What are the seven candlesticks? Those are the seven churches. It always gives an interpretation, all right? Um, and if it doesn't, usually if you track that down with the concordance and find that somewhere in the Bible, the Bible itself will interpret it, amen? Um, that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is got this wonderful way of decoding itself because it always uses the same idioms or illustrations or type shadows. It's very consistent, amen? And you've heard me say before, that's why I would get like a King James Bible or something pretty close, New King James, something like that, not a contemporary translation because the, the words don't follow, okay? They, they, they change the words up to kind of be more of a thought for thought instead of a word for word. And so when you're studying stuff like Revelation and you need to like, well, what does it mean seven horns or seven heads? Or, you know, when it's talking about different things and idioms, a, a, a translation like the King James is, a, is my recommendation. You say, Jeremy, do you have a problem with others? And I say, well, not really. I, I just think you'll outgrow them, especially if you get into studying the, the, the Word of God, if you, if you really start studying the Bible. Um, something like this is, is better. So my recommendation for this study is, you know, get it on your phone or, or go to Amazon or one of your Christian bookstores and get you a copy. Um. I know one thing, it has been around for over 400 years. So that's saying something. Um, now, a couple of things for introduction here. Um, notice in verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Who received it from God? Jesus received it. Jesus received it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants, which that's us. So that's a funny thing. So Jesus actually received this from Father God. And that makes sense because you remember when the disciples said, Lord, is the time now that you'll come and restore the kingdom? And he said, he said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons, but it is for my Father which is in heaven. Amen? It's, for, it's, it's the Father who will pick the right time. Amen? And so, you know, it's, I think Jesus knows those things now, but it's interesting that he actually was saying, hey, only the Father knows right now when they asked him that. 
And it's kind of proof there when he says that God gave to Jesus Christ this revelation. Amen? And like we said in the beginning, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not a revelation of the Antichrist. This book talks about the Antichrist. But one of the things that I would recommend that you do over the next few months is just read this book straight through chapter 1 to chapter 22 without stopping. Take about an hour and a half if you're a fast reader, two hours if you're slow. Just read it from the beginning all the way to the end. Put away the notes, put away the references, just find the the words, the text. Read the text all the way through. Amen? And, and, And just keep doing that. Read it over and over. And you'll find that this book is about Jesus. But everybody comes into the study of Revelation wanting to learn about the Antichrist and what's the mark of the beast and what's going to happen with the vials and the bowls and the trumpets and what are those weird locusts that are coming out of the ground. And and really, those are things that happen in the book, but the book is about Jesus Christ. All right? And because it's about Jesus Christ... The church is encouraged to read it. This is the only book that has the, the blessing on it, or some, one preacher said it's the only book that has the audacity to say, blessed is he that reads. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So blessed is he that reads, hears, and keeps. All right? So you heard it tonight. Read it in the privacy of your own home and keep the words that are in it. When the things, when there's things spoken that you should do, keep them. But I also think that when it says keep the words... I think it could be telling us to not remove the words or add to the words, all right? Because the blessing comes in chapter 1, verse 3, but look at the cursing in Revelation 22. Let's go back there for just a second. There's a blessing and a cursing with this book. All right, so Revelation chapter 22, say amen when you're there. All right, 22. Look at this, verse 18. It says, I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Amen? That's powerful. So, you know, the Holy Spirit's not messing around. Um, This was given to Jesus for us, and no one's to be tampering with it. Amen? So there's a blessing and a cursing that comes with this book. So, um, we know that it's given to his servants. Now, that word servant, we've talked about that in Paul's writings where it's a bondservant, um, and it's not a slave, that a captured slave. A bondservant or a bondslave is a volunteer slave. When In the Old Testament, when a person was um, working for somebody to pay off a debt, Once that debt was paid, if they wanted to remain in the family as their servant, they would become what's called a doulos, and it would be called a bondservant. What they would do is is they they would put them up against the door, and they would pierce their ear, and then everybody in the community would know that that person belonged to that family, but not as a a indentured servant, but a volunteer. You see... God has pierced our hearts with the gospel. But he has not brought us into the kingdom and 
forced slavery. This, this walk is not a forced labor. Amen? This, this sir, our life for Christ, it's one of, it's volunteered. See, the debt has been paid, and now that the debt is paid, we say, Lord, I freely want to remain in your family as a servant. Amen? And what has he done? He's pierced our heart, and we are now forever volunteers for his kingdom. Amen? And so he has written it to his servant. And, um, and also, when we talk about the book, let's be clear that it is Revelation singular. How many times have you messed up and called it the book of Revelations? You know, it's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation singular. Amen. And, um, and that, that just means the revealing Okay, or the unveiling. Um, the Greek word there is apocalypso. And a lot of times we think of apocalypse as like, oh man, it's the apocalypse. It's the end. You know, it's, it's doom. But the apocalypse, the actual literal definition there just means the unveiling of something that was hidden and now is revealed. And as we go through this book, you'll see that's literally what it is. It's like a, it's, it's put together beautifully, almost like an orchestration of, of God unveiling Jesus to the whole world in his glory. Amen. And, and, that's, what, and that's what it means. So a um, couple of things then. Um, To better understand the Bible, we need to know a couple of things about it. Look where it says in verse 1, where it says, These things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So that word signified is a word that means semano, um, Semo or mark or a signal or a sign. All right. Um, signified is not a signature. He didn't he didn't sign his name. He didn't put a signature on it. But what it means is, is he sent it and he used signs or symbols. All right. Or marks to point the way. The whole Bible is written that way. You know, how many have ever gone on a treasure hunt and as you go along that treasure hunt, there's clues to go to the next station. Amen? Well, that's how the Bible has been written from the beginning. And it's not just in the English language. And this is why I kind of harp a bit about the King James Bible. Because it's 400 years worth of translation that's still intact. It's got all the study helps, like the concordances that you need and everything like that. But not only that, the original languages of the Hebrew and the Greek, it's not just the, the letters that provide code, but if you was to dig deep into this thing, even the very numbers of the way things were written um, and the way they used the language. Let me give you an example um, in verse 7. Um, sorry, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega. Okay, now, if you had an interlinear Bible, how many of you know what an interlinear Bible is? It's, it's a Bible that has the English language, but it has the Greek words, and then underneath the Greek words, it has the, the English words. And it's a great study tool. If you don't have one, I recommend an interlinear Bible, a Strong's Concordance, um, you know, those things that have lexicons in the back of them. But if you was to get an interlinear Bible and you was to read verse 8 in the original Greek language, what you would see in verse 8 is where it says, I am the Alpha and Omega. The word Alpha is spelled out, but the word Omega just has the symbol. Now, why would the Holy Spirit do that? Why would he take the time to actually spell out Alpha, but just leave Omega with just a symbol. Well, he says, I am the beginning and the ending. Alpha is beginning, omega is end. Because the beginning has happened, but the ending is not yet complete, is it? 
So he recognizes the beginning by spelling out alpha, but recognizes that the ending has not been complete by just using a symbol for omega. Now, these are things that we would never understand just reading the English language. But, you know, guys way smarter than me that can read Greek and everything like that, in these commentaries that you can read, they point some of these things out. And I've only pointed them out tonight just to simply say that it's very detailed. It's very accurate. It's, it, has a, it has a code like no other. It's, it's the most marvelous, living, alive book that we could ever have in our midst. All right? It's better than Homer's Iliad. It's better than, you know, any of the literature that they're trying to tell our children that they must have. You know, this is more than just literature. This is living, breathing from, uh, from a God who's above time and space. Amen? So, so when we see the word signified there, know that he's been given to us by a code. And this code is broken by using the word. So when you see something that you don't understand, I admonish you, don't listen to me, all right? You can, if you're taking notes, remember Acts 17 about the Bereans where it says Paul preached and the Bereans, let's go there because I want this to kind of be our, uh, a kind of like a, a subtext for everything we do in this study. Acts chapter 17, verse 18. Say amen when you're there. And I might have gotten that mixed up. It might be 1817. Is that not it either? Hold on a minute. Let me get my phone. If you find it before me, just shout. Uh, let's see. Chapter 17. And noble. That's the word I'm looking for. Seventeen eleven. All right, look at this. Start at verse ten, and the brethren immediately were in Acts chapter seventeen verse ten, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now it says in verse eleven, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. In other words, Paul spoke to them, and then they went back and did their homework, their due diligence, and saw if the things that Paul was saying were right. And the Holy Spirit declared them more noble than the Thessalonians. All right? And... The thing about the Thessalonians that you have to understand is Paul was preaching the last, the study of the last things. He was preaching prophecy and the return of Jesus Christ to the Thessalonians when they were babes in Christ, all right? And so I say to you and to everybody that the message of prophecy and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Thessalonians, these are subjects that need to be taught to new believers. It's not something that should be waiting until they become mature. No, this is the message that set the hippies on fire in the 1970s. All right, The message of prophecy that Jesus Christ could come back for a spotless bride at any moment. 
And that's what set a generation on fire after Vietnam and after all of the corruption of the Nixon administration and all the bad things that happened in the 60s, all the crazy things that we've seen in the 2000s or even the 2020s, the message of prophecy, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation will set a generation on fire and it should be preached and it should be taught and it should be spoken to, especially to new believers. Amen. All right. So that's my soapbox for the minute. All right. Now let's go here now. So two basic discoveries. We see that the Bible consists of 66 separate books penned by over 40 authors over a period of several thousand years with an integrated message system. It can be demonstrated that the origin of this message is from outside of our space and time. All right. So these 66 books, the Old Testament talks of a nation. The New Testament speaks of a man. All right. Now, what we have to, what I believe, and you can choose to walk this way if you'd like, but I believe that God in his word means what he says. I take the scripture literally. All right. I take it literally. Um, I don't believe anything is by accident. I believe every word was placed there on purpose. Remember Jesus, he said, I have not come to destroy, but I've come to fulfill. And he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He even said, he brought up the jot and the tittle. All right? Now, the jot and the tittle is a Hebrew phrase. If I got it right, the jot looks like a bit of a, uh, an apostrophe, and the tittle is the little hook on the end of a letter. Very small little movements of the pen. It'd be like us saying, dot the I's and cross the T's. Amen? God is concerned about the dots and the crosses. Amen? He Every single little tiny phrase has purpose in the Holy Scriptures. And I believe it is to be interpreted literally. That's my conviction. All right? Now, um, so we know that the revelation means the unveiling. Um, We saw that it has a special blessing. There are 404 verses in this book and over 800 relate to the Old Testament. In other words, there's 404 verses in Revelation and in those 404 verses, there are 808 references to the Old Testament. One of the, mo- one of the reasons why people find that this is a confusing book is because they are weak in their Old Testament. All right. Um, if you understand the Old Testament, the book of Revelation is not is not really a, a mystery. All right. Um, you know, let me talk about something here real quick. Um, you know, we say that eschatology is the fancy Bible college name for the study of last things. All right. And um, when you study eschatology or the or the last things. What you're going to find is you're, the first fork in the road, if you like, is how, what people think about the millennium. All right. Now, what is the millennium? Most of us know here. If you, the millennium is a period of a thousand years where the man, Jesus Christ, will literally rule right here in Claremont County. Okay. The physical man, Jesus Christ, for a thousand years, will rule in Claremont County and every other county in the world. All right? That's going to happen. And as we'll learn more about this as we study, because the old, this present earth will not pass away until after Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Okay? So it's old earth. Now, they, Jesus may change the name to something else besides Claremont County, but this area is going to be under his jurisdiction. Amen? And guess what? If you're found worthy, you'll be reigning with him too, praise God. 
So all those guys that have been taking your money and not doing what they promised, hmm, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, so that's the first thing you're going to find is that the difference of how people think about the millennium or the, or the thousand-year um, reign. So we basically break this down into three groups, okay? There's what's called amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial, all right? So what does amillennial mean? Amillennial means that they, they feel that we're, that the, the church is, the, is reigning over the world. That, that instead of Jesus actually physically coming and ruling for a thousand years, the church now rules and reigns on this present earth, okay? Um, and, you know, because most, maybe you, maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard of this word, it's called preterist, all right? Preterist. A preterist believes that the events um, of Revelation um, were for the first century, um, there is the historical view that um, they believe it happened in history past. Then there's the idealist who only believes that these events are allegorical. And then there is a futurist which believes that the, book, the events in this book are prophecy. All right. So a preterist is amillennial. They believe that these things have already happened or they are currently happening now. Um, the problem with amillennial is this. The messianic promises that are found throughout the Old Testament, all right? And we're going to talk about these as we get some time. But there are three main covenants that everybody should be familiar with in the Old Testament, all of them really, but the main is the Abrahamic covenant. God promised them a people, and he promised them a land, all right? There's another covenant called the Palestinian covenant where God promised to bring Israel back into the land, all right? That promise is already, that covenant's already been fulfilled, all right? And then the third covenant that people need to be familiar with is the Davidic covenant, that Jesus, the son of David, will physically reign on the throne of his father David. Amen? Real quick, go over to Luke chapter 1 real quick. Luke chapter 1. We're going to get to this book, but I just got to get all the background stuff out of the way, all right? I hope you're enjoying this. All right, so if anything, it's for my own conscience sake anyway. So here we go. One, Luke chapter 1, and uh, let's look at uh, uh, 32. Say amen when you're there. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Well, let's start with verse 31. That's the best place to start. And behold... Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him, what? The throne of his father David. Okay? Now, the problem and the way amillennialism came into church history is that, can you imagine being a cardinal or a bishop and going to Caesar and saying, you know, the Bible says that one day Jesus is going to sit upon your throne. That wasn't a popular message. All right? Telling kings and sovereigns in the day, in the early history of the church, after 300, around 300 A.D., this wasn't a popular message. So guys like Origen and um, Augustus, they began to allegorize the book of Revelation. And they began to, you know, say that it was... Um, you know, it was that that was not Jesus, that he was actually physically going to come and reign, but that the church would reign and be on the throne. Well, that's unfortunate because that's what led to a lot of anti-Semitism that 
plagued church history for many years, especially, you know, from like 500 to 1500 A.D., clear up into World War II. You know, there's been a lot of statements that, you know, um, you know, Hitler, he thought he was actually following, you know, church history by getting rid of the Jews because that's what they were supposed to do, following the example of the Crusades. And this, as great as the Reformation was, this is, this is probably its biggest, um, you know, mistake, is they did not also take the early teachings of the apostles with the return and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what it did was it, it, it watered down prophecy, it watered down the promises of the Old Testament, it watered down um, Jewish history, promises to the Jews, all the things that relate to Israel have been swept under the carpet, and now it's just the church. And a lot of people call that replacement theology, okay? And it's been a stain on, on, on church history. Um, particularly, you know, these guys that, um, you know, were, to be honest, mainstream denominations, you know, um, and when I say mainstream, you know, you got the Catholic Church, and from there you have the Reformation, and then from there you have, you know, um, the Reformed Church, Presbyterian Church, uh, Church of England, you know, uh, you know, Church of Scotland, you know, all kinds of different churches, and from there, you know, out of the, without going through a big history lesson, you know, from uh, the Church of England, you had the Methodist movement with the Wesleys and all that stuff. And so what I'm trying to say is, is that the majority of churches don't have a biblical view of the study of the last days, particularly the book of Revelation. And that's why you might have grown up in a Catholic church or a Methodist church or Episcopalian church or a Presbyterian church and never heard this book. Why? Because they, they don't really believe the way it's properly taught. Therefore, they, you know, you never hear about it that much. Um, and so, and it's based, one of the problems is it's based on this view of the millennium. So, so bad eschatology on all millennials, they believe we're in the millennium, that the church is reigning. Um, Post-millennials, which there's not many of those, they believe that Christ will reign after the thousand years. And pre-millennial is... Um, is those that believe in the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is what we believe in. Um, which is funny enough, if you trace back some of this um, belief system, you know, through the Baptists, through uh, through Darby, um, the, the Plymouth Brethren, you know, there was a real move in the 1800s, um, right before the the First World War, where God began to stir up men again for the scriptures and begin to bring in a right view of last day events. Amen. And rightly so, because if you were, if you did not have a grip on your last day theology, World War I, you would have thought that was the end of the world. Amen. You know what I'm saying? So you can see the wisdom of God in raising up guys like Darby and, and Larkin and all these different guys in the 1800s who actually begin to teach and preach about Revelation and the book of Daniel and God's promise to Israel and the thousand-year reign of Christ. He began to bring these things back into the church again, all right? And, and that's where, you know, and so the Baptist and, and my heritage through Calvary Chapel, which was Baptist, you know, we kind of got these things a little bit on track. But I got to be honest with you, I'm a minority. And if you believe in the, in the thousand-year reign and the pre-millennial pre reign of Christ, you're a minority when it comes to, if you was to drive down the street and count all the churches and you was to ask each one of those pastors what they believed about the millennium, a lot of them wouldn't have an answer. All right? So these things are a narrow road, amen? It's a narrow road, these things that we're going to be learning in this study. So the other thing um, where people start to get um, the next fork in the road is the idea of the tribulation. What is the tribulation period? Who's it for? Who's going to go through it? What's its purpose? All right? Um, and we can break that down into post-trib, mid-trib, and pre-trib.
And, you know, there are many good believers that believe that, you know, the, the tribulation, that the church will go through the tribulation. There are people that don't believe they'll go through the tribulation. There are people that believe that some of the church will go through the tribulation and some of the church won't go through the tribulation. Um, and so, you know, those are different things. All of, when, it comes to, when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ, I don't really want anything to do with you if you think that Jesus ain't going to come back and rule for a thousand years. You just go do your thing, all right? But when it comes to the tribulation, I'm not really going to stop breaking bread with somebody that maybe thinks a little differently than I do on this. I don't think it's really grounds for breaking fellowship. Um, but what I do think that each person had to do is they had to be able to give an account for the things that they believe. Amen. Don't just go on what Jeremy says. Don't just go on what, um, you know, the teachers on TV say. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some names, but I can't. They've all gone out of my head now. But, you know, make sure you do your study and you can give an account for why you believe what you believe. And we'll go through the different things on that. So, which leads us to our last point, this idea of a fancy Bible college word called hermeneutics. And this is just a fancy word on how do you interpret the Bible? Do you believe that the Bible is literal or do you believe that it's allegorical? All right. Do you guys know what I mean when I say allegorical? Let's get the definition on that because I've said it a couple of times and I kind of feel like the more I say it, the more I realize I don't even know what it means. So let's just uh, bust out our Webster's Dictionary again and uh, see what we got here. 1828. Once again, if you don't have one of these on your phone, I highly recommend it. Um, get you a Webster's Dictionary. Don't get a modern one because they mess it up. Um, allegory. Okay, allegoric. It's in the manner of figurative or describing resemblances. Um, to allegorize means turning into allegory or understanding in all allegorical sense. So it isn't actually a physical reigning of Jesus Christ. It's, it's symbolic of something else. And that's, they're saying it's symbolic of the church reigning, not Jesus physically reigning. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't allegory in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see that. But a lot of times when the Holy Spirit is using allegory, he tends to tell you what it means what it symbolizes. And if it doesn't, you can go through a concordance and you can find somewhere in the Bible it does that for you, amen? Nobody, nowhere in the scriptures or in the early church father writings did they say that Jesus wasn't literally going to reign, okay? The, the church, and when I say the church, I mean the Catholic church made that up so that they could, you know, have power and, you know, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the letters. So, if you tend to have a literal translation of the Bible, you are going to lean premillennial and probably pre-tribulation. And if you're more allegorical, you're going to be amillennial and post-trib. That's just kind of historically, that's the way the chips have landed on the table. And, um, and so, you know, like I say, I'm a literalist. I don't even really try to say that, you know, some of the things that we see could be helicopters or stuff like that. I mean, you know, like how Lindsay did back in the 80s. You know, they could be, but I, it just, you get too far off in left field. I just like to take the Bible for what it is. Amen. Praise God. Okay, so enough about the, uh, the viewpoints there. Um, let's talk about the structure of the book of Revelation and this amazing use of the number seven. I cannot believe how many sevens are in this Bible. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars, seven lamps, seven titles, seven promises to the overcomer, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven mountains, seven kings, and the list goes on and on. There's more subtle ones like the seven-letter division of the churches, 
how there are seven actual parts to those letters, um, the seven titles or features of the description of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, which we'll go over, the seven Beatitudes. There's actually seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation, like we saw here um, in the first one. Blessed is he that reads, hears, and keeps. All right, so just a, an exhaustive amount, and there's thousands of them. And you'll, you'll, you'll come across them as you read them. You'll see um, a group of seven come in there. Um, seven judgments, seven years of judgment. There's seven I am's of Christ. Um, there's actually seven worship songs in the book of Revelation. And the cool thing about these seven worship songs is they, they go, they, what is that, crescendo? Is that the word I'm looking for? Crescendo. There's a crescendo to them. They start off small and they grow and get larger. And we'll see that as we go through the book, the seven worship songs that are written. Um, and then in the last chapters of the book, there are seven new things that we'll see. All right. Um, the other thing that we got to be aware of when we're when we're in this book is the constant reference to past, present and future. OK, past, present and future. We're always going to be looking at past, present and future in this book. Um, an example of that would be um, in verse four of Revelation chapter 1, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. It says, from him which is, which was, and which is to come. All right? Um, you've heard me say before, the ministry of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Um, you know, he, is, he has a threefold ministry. Um, our salvation is made up of threefold. You know, we were saved... We're being saved, and we will be saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, you were saved from the penalty of sin, all right? Right now, through the Holy Spirit, we're being saved by the through the power, uh, from the power of sin, that sin no longer has dominion over us, according to Romans chapter 6, Right? And then in the future, in our glorified body, we will be saved from the presence of sin. All right? So three Ps. We're saved from the penalty, we're saved from the power, and we're saved from the presence of sin. So the Bible colleges like to call that justification, sanctification, and glorification. All right? And a lot of times, that's where the confusion comes between the once saved, always saved, and you can lose your salvation camps. They, they begin to blend, and they don't rightly divide the word of truth between, are you talking justification here? Are you talking sanctification? Are you talking glorification? And it's very important that we rightly divide the word and know which lane we're talking about, just like it is that we rightly divide the word in the book of Revelation between the church and the nation of Israel. All right? And this is, once again, if you don't do these things, then that's where bad theology comes in and that's where confusion comes in. And then that's where people just say, you know... I'm doing a, through the books of the Bible series, but I'm going to just skip Revelation. There's just too complicated. It's just too, we're just not going to do that book this year. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. So, so you have to be aware of the past, present, and future. You know, the God which was, which is, and which is to come. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Faithful witness is current. Begotten of the dead is past. Prince of the kings of the earth is future. You know, unto him, unto him that loved us, washed us, and made us. You see, he loved us, showed that on the cross. He washed us through his blood, and he's made us kings and priests, all right? And then he says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, all right? Past, present, future, okay? So remember the tenses, and remember the tenses of your salvation. You have been saved from the penalty of sin, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for you that are taking notes. You are being saved from the power of sin, according to Romans 6. This is by the Holy Spirit. This is moment by moment. Do we, do we operate 
with, without sin in our life, every moment of our lives right now? No way, Jose. Praise God, though, when I fall in my sanctification, I appeal to my justification. Hallelujah. And then that's what puts me back on the right track for my glorification. Amen? So, remember those things. We also are saved from the presence of sin according to Romans 8.23. All right, and that's the redemption of our body. All right, a couple of other things. Um, as we go through this book, I would encourage you guys to have a good grasp on the book of Genesis because of the types that are referred to in Abraham and Isaac. Um, I, ref I encourage you to, to go through the book of Daniel because of the references to Nebuchadnezzar's image and also the visions of the beast that Daniel had. I also encourage you to read the book of Ruth, because Ruth is a story about the kinsman redeemer redeeming the land back to its rightful owner. All right, And there's strong illustrations in the book of Ruth and in the book of Revelation when the lamb is, who is worthy to to take the scroll. That scroll is the title deed to the earth. Um, and Joshua is another cool book because the conquest of Joshua is very similar to the conquest of Jesus and the, uh, the church when we will ride back in conquest with him um, over the earth. And also Exodus um, for the tabernacle, the, the, the pattern that God has um, in that book there's, you'll see a lot of that in, the, in Revelation. Um, a neat little side note here. Um, why did God reveal to Abraham what he was going to do to Sodom? Because his, his testimony said, he is my friend. And God wanted to show Abraham, who was his friend, what was going to happen. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? I no longer call you servants, but I call you what? Friends. And who has Jesus given this book of what he's going to do in the last days of the earth? He's given it to us, his friends, amen? The church. Um, so he calls Abraham and his disciples friends, and it's interesting that he told his friends what kind of judgments were going to come on the earth. Um, also, a neat little note here is that who, what disciple was called the disciple of love? John. And in the Old Testament, there was one prophet that was called beloved. Do you know who that prophet was? Daniel. Daniel was called beloved, and John was called beloved. And it's interesting that the prophet of love and the apostle of love have actually been the ones that have been entrusted with the books of judgment. So, just a little neat little thing of the, of the, the perfection of the Holy Spirit, how he does things. Um, one, one thing that you have to be aware of when you read Daniel, Daniel is a sealed book of judgment. He actually tells Daniel, seal up these things. So he told Daniel some things that he wrote, but he told him some other things, and he said, seal those up, don't write those down. And there are things that he told Daniel that we don't know about, right? What I think he told him is what he told John, and he revealed them to John and said, now is the time to not seal them up, to write them down and make them known, amen? So... Those are those things. A um, couple of other things here. Um, the whole counsel of God. Here is some things to uh, keep note of as we, as we go through this study. What is our protection with staying on track with all the different viewpoints that we have over this controversial subject? All right? Verse 1 of chapter 1, we've already talked about that. Make Jesus Christ the center of this book. Make Jesus Christ the center, not the Antichrist. Amen? Amen? Make Jesus Christ the subject matter, not the Antichrist. All right? Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Amen? 
We have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, everything that we need to know for interpretation has already been written down for us. If we'll be like the Bereans and we'll search it out and find these things to be true. Okay? Um, Jesus told the disciples and the Pharisees, he said, Search the scriptures, for they testify of who? Me. This whole book is about a man. You know, one of the things, and I'm, I found another soapbox to stand on here for a minute, if you'll buy me some time. John also wrote three epistles. Go with me over to the epistle of chapter John 1.1, 1, 1, real quick. John 1.1. 1, 1. Almost wrapping up here. I see the time. All right, so John 1.1, 1, 1, look at this. John said here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All right? So why did John write these things? That we may have this fellowship that they have, and their fellowship is with Father God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember in John's Gospel, he said, I write these things so that those would believe on His name. All right? In this epistle, he says, I write these things that you may have fellowship in His name. And later on, he gives us the book of Revelation that we may know that we will reign in His name. All right? So the, the very essence of this book is for fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, I'm, I'm getting tired of hearing messages preached in pulpits today where the whole message is about me. Amen. The book is not about me. The book is not about a five-part series of how I can have a better modeled life. Okay? You know, this book is not to be used for motivation, for, you know, for like, you know, those, those motivational speakers that you hear in Hollywood. You know, they try to take a little bit of the word of God because it's truth and they motivate people to live a certain way. No, you get, you fall in love with Jesus and you're going to live the way he wants you to live. Amen. And let me tell you something. The problem with that motivational preaching, it's cookie cutter. It churns out the same type of people. You follow Jesus and you fall in love with Jesus and you do what Jesus tells you to do. I guarantee you're going to be doing something and I'm going to be doing something totally different. But guess what? We're both going to have fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Amen. And God's going to get it accomplished. Because God doesn't just want a bunch of Christmas cookies that look like a Christmas tree and every one of them are green. You know, cookie cutter Christians. We don't need cookie cutter Christians, man. And the reason why we got cookie cutter Christians now is because everybody is teaching the word of God like it's a formula, like it's some motivational pattern on how to live. No, those things are in there. But the purpose of this book is to have fellowship with the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he's coming back to rule for a thousand years and for a lot more than that. Praise God. Amen. So we need to look at this book as it's about a person. And last thing we need to do to keep us on track and avoid controversy and getting mad at each other is we got to remember the Lord's Prayer, man. I feel the Holy Ghost. Matthew 6.10. Let's all go there real quick. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Say amen when you're there. All right, I'm still trying to get there. What I say, Matthew, what? All right, where's it start? All right. All right. So after this manner, therefore pray ye. And let's all read this together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the church says, Amen. Praise God. So we just remember those few things, and that will keep us on track. That'll keep us from getting mad at each other. That'll keep us from falling out over these things. Like I say, there's, you know, it'll be a good study. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Tell your friends about it. Tell your baby Christians about it. Tell your loved ones about it. And uh, let's get people on fire for Jesus Christ in these latter days. Amen. Praise God. Let's stand and pray. Praise God. Well, Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that your name is in the book and that, Jesus, you are the spirit of prophecy, that you are the reason why we have it, Lord, to give us signs and signals and, and, and po posts that's, that point to you. And we want to thank you and declare you um, our Lord tonight. We want to thank you for saving us. And Lord, we want to confess your name um, above all else. Like the song said today, you know, the, all the other names, you know, just the name of Jesus, you know, and uh, no other name. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. And uh, we declare your name to each other and to the world. And we thank you for this, the precious promises of this book. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to take us um, down this road and uh, open up our hearts and keep us on track. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that there would be a burning unity in the fellowship here. And Lord, that you would light our hearts on fire. And Lord, let this be very significant time in our lives, God, as we fellowship with you and with each other. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. So the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord give you peace.